0: I'm Adrian Sykes, artist manager, music industry veteran, and your host for the Did You Know podcast, where we tell the untold stories of the black and ethnic minority executives who have been trailblazers in the UK music business. If you haven't checked out season one, go back and listen to insightful conversations with amongst others, Darkest Beast OBE, Faye Hoyt. Tiny Temper, and many others, all sharing their stories about their paths in the UK music industry. There's even a two-part conversation with myself and partner in crime, Danny D, where we talk about our respective careers to date. We kick off season two with a true leader of our industry, Rich Castillo, director of A&R at Atlantic Records. At the start of every episode, I like to ask all our guests why they chose the music business. Here's what Rich had to say.
1: For me, the music business was something I sort of meandered into. It's kind of chosen me. I know how corny that sounds. I just find that I really enjoy what it is and I enjoy the pace of it. I enjoy the, vari- the variations of the business and stuff like that. There was no particular reason. It just happened to really suit my characters and my strengths. and and all the things that I've um, sort of excel in.
0: How passionate were you about music growing up? What was the young Rich Castillo like? So it's about home life and about you growing up as a young man.
1: My mum's Jamaican. I was raised in a sort of single parent home. I was heavily involved in like um, drama and television growing up. I'm from a place called Nottingham where... We have loads of like, we've got really good culture there. We've got a lot of that Jamaican community, um, a lot of Indian and Pakistani community. And I grew up around a lot of diversity. I remember being at school, celebrating Eid, um, doing, and and then another week, there was a thing called the Rock and Reggae Carnival in Nottingham, um, that we, that we'd all be at. And I had a really sort of, um, nice palette of culture. Being involved in TV and, and theatre from a very young age in Nottingham in a thing called Central TV Workshop, I was sort of, opened up to a lot of things um, in terms of processes that I think have really set me up for the rest of my life.
0: Obviously, being across different cultures, different people, what kind of music that you were listening to as you were growing up?
1: The first um, album I ever bought was um, Usher's My Way on cassette. It was a cassette album. I remember thinking, wow, Usher's so cold, cause he was, he was into the dancing side of it, but he also mastered the music end of it. I was raised around gospel music. Um, my mum played a lot of reggae music, which is Jamaican. So I used to, I grew up on a lover's rock. So I grew up like on a Sunday having to do chores to reggae music. Freddie McGregor or um any of the sort of big people that were out there were on, and then I knew it was chore time and we'd all have a rotor to we'd all have to do our jobs sort of thing. So my mum my mum was a traditional Jamaican. I used to get sent to Saturday school with my brothers, which I always felt was more about me getting out of the house and giving my mum some space than it is than it was about educating. <laughs>
0: So tell us about your time in the TV and acting that you referenced earlier on.
1: So I was a part of a thing called Central TV Workshop. It's a drama group in Nottingham, which was funded by ITV and Carlton TV at the time. And what they did was they would get kids from the local community... Um, and they would um have a head like drama guy and for all the tv shows on itv and channel three they would have like walk-on parts or young tv roles for for children's television we would join a group where they would audition people from any sort of background and it wasn't about what you could afford or couldn't or, or what your parents were like they would literally audition anyone from any background and if you were talented and sort of motivated and and exciting in some way, they would allow you to join this group, which you go twice a week. You get, you get put forward for auditions. They run workshops. They bring speakers in. It's not funded anymore, but growing up, I think there's a generation of about. 20 years it was running. It was, a, it was a brilliant initiative for people from all backgrounds to sort of have an opportunity to really excel in an area that wouldn't normally happen for them because of, because of the finances. I, I don't think I was amazing at it, but I was, I'm the sort of person who just gets stuff done. I managed to wiggle my way through the audition. I managed to get a few TV roles as a kid, which put a bit of money in my pocket, which made me popular at school. Because of that, that sort of led into the music thing because I was doing that whilst um, getting into dancing and choreography and performing arts.
0: At what point do you begin to think about the music business as a, a potential career and how did you discover that it was something that you could gravitate towards?
1: So when, when I got into college, I, was, I got into a performing arts course doing cho- choreography and music sound, actually, it was, a, it was a dual thing. And during the course, they started to teach us about the business and about um, what a record deal was and how to raise money if you were just starting a small business in, in, in arts. So we, we got a bit of education around the Arts Council, um, we did a lot of sort of exercises where we had to pretend we were running a small business of, of a dance company and how we'd sort of apply to get funding and, and operate. So, one side of it was that. The other side of it was, whilst being on the course, some of the auditions for local um, pop groups were coming in on our on our sort of um, notice board, and I got an um, invite to go and audition for um, a tribute band that were going to spend the summer in Spain and um, touring hotels. Um, we get paid loads of money, we're gonna see loads of girls, we're gonna like have the best like so to me it was a no-brainer. I could already dance. I got through some auditions and I I got sort of I joined a group that got sent to Spain to Mallorca and Menorca for a summer, doing a tribute bands to Motown music and tribute to um popular boy bands at the time. So I I, I joined I joined this group thinking, <laughs> fuck it, like I knew I couldn't sing, but I could definitely dance. And I could definitely blag it. I was in decent shape and I had nothing to lose, no responsibilities at all. My mum's telling, my mum's like pushing me out the door to go and um, pay for yourself and everything else. Um, and there's an opportunity to make money and go and live in Spain for a bit. So I did that. And I think that's where I got the bug properly of, of, of the sort of music industry thing. We we got back to England from Spain and then decided to, um, we we're going to be a group and we're going to be famous. And what happened when you got to London? So we, we got a book called Showcase International. I don't know if you remember it. But um, yeah. me and my mate Dean, who's still a good friend now, who works for Insanity, we got this book and we literally called, we spent a, like two, three days at Dean's house and we called about 200 to 300 um, numbers in this book of management companies, explaining that we're a group, we're amazing. We just get in front of you, we'll sing a cappella. We spent the summer and we could do like harmonies, we could do arrangements and we had like one or two people in the group could actually sing, not including myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so we caught, we got a hold of some people, um, in London and we managed to blag, um, a meeting, um, with a guy called Richard Park. He was on the Fame Academy at the time. He used to be the head of music at Capital Radio. Yeah. That was our step in. So we were like, fuck, we've got a meeting with this guy. He's on TV. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna really sort of, this is it. This is the big one, guys. So we all sort of like borrow each other's clothes and sort of get down to London. Um, and this is this is after like calling everyone who's told tolerance basically like it's a no. So we went in front of him and his assistant there was really into some of the guys in the group. Like I think she just thought they were they were hot and he was trying to sort of build on he had a deal with Universal, I think, which was um with Mercury, which was part records. And he was trying to build up his repertoire in that because I think he had an opportunity to really sort of um transition into records more off the back of his profile of the radio stuff and the TV stuff. So we 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 auditioned he agreed to sort of work with us. So we're like, yeah, great, cool. So we moved to London um, as a group. We, get a, we rent a, Five of us rent a two-bedroom flat in Stratford as our first move to London. And we sort of, we record a single, we're getting ready to go with a single, and then he pulls a plug before the song comes out. What we thought was going to be a massive record deal, which had just been taken away from us, and we were all scratching our heads around how we're going to survive. So we sort of, I signed on to the dole, um we all signed on to dole whilst doing other sort of stuff to sort of survive. We're still sneaking into nightclubs, getting on guest lists somehow, <laughs> drinking dr- like still managed to get drunk and live a sort of semi-decent life. We figured out the system of how we could survive in London with with literally about on about 20 quid a week each sort of thing. After a while, um my my dole officer um, in order for me to get my dole, my dole officer was like, look, you've got to I've got to put you on a course or you've got to show me that you're looking for a job. And I was like, well, I only want to be in the music business because I'm like, I'm, I've got the bug net at this point. So they put me on a college course where I do two days a week at college. And then the rest of the days, I'm supposed to be looking for a job. And, that, and that's the conditions I would get my benefits sort of thing. So while I was at college, um, they sort of, it was actually quite helpful because they introduced to some music industry figures and my doll officer happened to be on the MMF, which is a music manager forum. So my doll, my doll guy is like an avid music person. Um, he hears about a role going um, at a place called uh, Shadit Global because um, a guy called JD had just left Shadit to move to Australia. Who was the guy who did all the Big Brothers records? So, I got an opportunity to um, get get in front of Jonathan. They put they they I applied for the job online and they came back and gave me an opportunity to go and see him. And during this period, my friend Dean was working at Zara in menswear. I'd sort of had I managed to get one day a week at H and M. And between between us, I managed to borrow Dean's um, uh, menswear suit that they give him for Zara because he if if worked there. They give you a suit <laughs> so you look like you know what you're doing. I I, I borrowed his suit and I borrowed my other brethren's shoes. And we went down to um went down to meet Jonathan and Charlotte. And obviously, I'd re- by that point I'd recorded a single. We sort of we'd been touring, so we understood the process of rehearsals. We understood what mixing was, what 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 getting song mastered was. We sort of we, I knew the processes, so. I got in front of him. Um, he quizzed me a bit. I explained to him that I knew all this stuff, and then at the end of the meeting, I'm like, "Oh, by the way, I've got this group who are amazing. You should check them out." And he, Jonathan turned around and said, "I'm not interested in your music at all. Like, just just so you know, like, <laughs> I don't give a shit about the the band thing. But if you're in, but if you're interested in getting into the business side of it, um, I'm open to giving you an opportunity to um, work on a temporary basis here, sort of thing." So I was like, "Amazing! How much money will I get?" He said, "I'll, I'll pay your expenses." So I'm like, to me, expenses, uh, my first thing was, okay, Then I can creatively (laughs) manipulate that to work for me. He allowed me to sort of come into the office and my job was basically to support um, anything, basically, that the other guys that already work in the established didn't want to do. So some of that was, the first thing I worked on was Jamelia. so she just had a massive, she just had the massive hit. And then it was album after that I got involved. I was tasked with sort of doing remixes and trying to get them on choice. And I cut a lot of my teeth in that, in that process in terms of le- learning and understanding what, what, what my role should be. As soon as I started to show a bit of value, he, he took care of me. But at the start, I was, my, I mean, my first salary, I would happily say My first salary that I agreed with, I was on 12 grand a year and I was so excited. I couldn't believe my luck. I could not believe that I was in London getting paid to work
0: and what did you learn from your time working at Jonathan Shallot's office
1: i learned like when it's go time he really really goes if there's an opportunity to sort of um, win on a project uh, he will lean in so hard in terms of like cuz obviously i while with jonathan I, I came across this group called Endubs as well so that wasn't the, the sort of the pivotal point on my whole journey like i, I came across Endubs at, uh, at the um, in the city music conference in manchester Um, and I remember I turned up at the, in the city in a suit thinking this is how we do it in the music business. I didn't, I have no understanding of what, what was okay and not. So I'm wearing a fucking three piece looking like Charlotte's sidekick, but I'm still going to gigs like (laughs) a (laughs) mandem.
0: Yeah. That's what, that's, that's proper day and nightwear, isn't it? That's, that's office wear and nightwear right, right there, mate. (laughs) <laughs> so I was still
1: turning up. And people were looking at me sideways, like I was like 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 a houseboy or something. I was I don't know. It was a bit mad, and um, and I remember sort of there was, was stalking this band for sort of for months. Like after seeing them in the city, stalking them, and they already had a manager who was one of the kids' dads, and they'd already done like a small deal with Polydor for a single or something like that. And I. I stalked them to to death. I kept turning up at shows. I just felt like, I just really, really believed in these kids. I always felt like they had something that the UK had not had before. Um, and I feel like with the, with the multi, with the diversity of the group, two white Greek kids and a mixed race kid doing black culture, um, and doing council culture and and middle England sort of culture. I thought there was an opportunity there. And, um, so I, I got involved. Um, the dad passed, when the dad passed away, Um, and once the dad passed away, because I'd been around them so much constantly, I think it was a lot. The next person to get involved had to be someone who had been around them and knew them. And I think with me doing that work and Jonathan having the experience of already breaking Jamelia and Big Brothers, it was just, it just made sense for us to sort of get involved. And that's how we got involved. And at the time, Colin Barlow was running Polydor and he was sort of the lead on that side of it. But it was clearly they didn't have, they didn't have any sort of real, real, um, championed within the label outside of a president who had a lot on anyway already sort of thing. Um, and we were able to navigate them out of that situation uh, and then sort of then drill into a proper album, which was the first album that I, I made myself, um, it, which turned out to, to really work. And even to date is a double platinum album.
0: Let's talk about that first album because clearly it was a pivotal moment in your career and in some ways was the ultimate launch pad for where you are today. Tell us about making the record, and obviously, I mean, from working around then dubs, that extended into something else for you as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was it's, it was the best possible
1: opportunity to get at making a record. That I think anyone could have. I really looked out because the kids had been raised in studios. Um, Daffy's dad was a, a part of Mongo Jerry, uh, the, the group. So you know, the, in the summertime, so they'd grown up touring. So Daffy and phaser. As young as they were, um, and Talisa, their whole family had been in music from birth. So he'd been Dappy's older brother is a mix engineer. Um, Dappy's dad was a writer and a producer as well. So they had a, an in-depth understanding of the processes of delivering audio from the, from from very very early. And for me, um, as much as I've been in the studio a lot before that, to see Dappy, Dappy was the driver. To see his sort of attention to detail and like when you think something's okay and him hearing three or four things that are not okay on audio and his sort of real, real sort of focused approach to delivering audio. It was just like, for me, it it was an education, a learning and something that I've sort of managed to keep with me ever since working with him. The first album was a collection of me running around Camden trying to find bits and bobs of like files from old songs that they've written from people with their mates who are sort of wannabe producer types. Um, that have got a flat like half a mile down the road who are never awake in the daytime, only wake up at nighttime, um, and all, and whose family are all disjointed so that you can never quite get anything together. So it was a bit of a fact-finding mission of trying to get all the files together. We managed to sort of really help them on their sort of live side, which I think helped on the album side, because whilst we were making the album, they were doing loads of under 18 nights right across the country. And I think them seeing that firsthand, that that sort of slow build on on the live side of it really contributed towards what the album became, and the, and their storytelling.
0: And your role managing MWs at that time also coincided with a, with another role because you know outside of being the manager, you extend into A which then leads you into working for all around the world.
1: On the A and R side, when I was managing, I didn't know I was doing it. I was just getting the job done. It wasn't like, oh, you're gonna aim all this record. For me it was like, Okay, cool. We've got these we've got the sessions, they're cool. We we also need to bring some top liners in to help with this bit, or we also need a mix engineer, a serious mix engineer guys. Come on, we've got to really get someone who's levels, who's delivered audio before us. So let's let's talk to them, let's see what we can do on the mix. Let's bring a new engineer and you can do vocals a lot quicker so we can get through more songs in an evening or get through get further into the Because... When it comes to comping vocals, Dappy was always really, really thorough. And th- there was a lot of frustration around engineers that were not able to keep up at the pace that he had. So I let into the A&R bit almost because it was a necessity. And by the time we'd done the second deal of All Around the World, there was no day-to-day A&R person on the record. We would just send them in and they'd go yes or no sort of thing. It wouldn't be like, oh, maybe you should change the middle eight section or the harmonies are not working in this, pit, in this part. Should we pull them out? There was no- Those conversations would happen. It was just like, is it good? Is it bad? The good thing about that was we were forced to make sure by the time we gave it to them that we were across that bit. And because we were sort of consistently, after the first album, we charted, I think we was around number four, next to Beyonce, or something random like that. And it was in, it was in Q4 as well, which at the time was was just, it was just incredible. It was just it was a massive, massive result that nobody expected to happen. Um, we didn't have one top 20, one top 30 single on that first album at all. So normally you sort of in the modern day, like you, if you've got no hits on it, you sort of would hold off for a second. Um, but at that time, we just we put it out because we thought that we had the the culture of the UK was on side and we thought that we had an opportunity to put it out. So we did. Obviously, as soon as you have a, have a hit album, <laughs> all the big guys start leaning in and the usual sort of land grab starts to happen. Um which is fine. um. At that, at that time, I think it was Island Records who were sort of, we were sort of, I was always close to Darkest anyway. Because Jonathan used to, me and Jonathan was constantly pitching to him and Nick Gatfield Um, when they were Island. Ireland. It was one of my first, actually one of my first label meetings with a label was with that. And Just a quick anecdote on that. I went to see Nick Gatfield and we had some music. We were pitching for an artist. I always remember this. We went to play the music and I, 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 I used to burn CDs before the meetings to make sure... That um, the, the audio was right, so I went and seen it. Gatfield with Jonathan shallett and the, I would burned the instrumental rather than the lead track. So Shallett had done the big big pitch, giving it the big man. He'd done his presentation and over to me for the music, and and there's literally no vocal on the track. It was just it was just production, and he starts looking at me like I'm thinking, yeah, this is it. Back to nothing in my go, <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember. Um, digging deep into my bag because I had a few copies and finding one that actually worked properly and, like, literally beads of sweat coming off my face and that one working and then the meeting being saved by literally... The skin of your teeth. The skin of my teeth, yeah. So that was where I learned, always check the audio before you go to the meeting, always double, triple check the audio before you go to the meeting. Um, Anyway, so um, Island Records lent in on the end of stuff and for for the second album, um, they... um, we went through their system in order to get a bit more of international and a bit more um, of an international approach. And that was the first time I started going to LA as well properly to record properly. So the second album, we actually recorded with a lot of US guys along the way to sort of try and move the band on a bit.
0: Let's celebrate the success of End One double platinum album, one platinum album, one gold selling album, two number one singles and six top tens. It's a wonderful achievement. And, you know, I mean, for those that are unable to see so I mean, I'm looking at Richard behind him. He has the wall of success behind him, and it's richly deserved. But that was really the moment where you really land. Yeah, I really land, because at that point, people are saying
1: who's made the record with them, because obviously people know the process. And the thing I'm most proud of about that process is that it wasn't one song in and out. It wasn't one album in and out. We, this is a, over a period of four to five years of constant and relentless Uh, persistent what I learned most from that was our job as ANRs and executives is equally if not more so about making sure the person is fit to record and fit to be able to perform at his best as it is about the actual audio itself
0: is that holistic viewpoint still prominent in the way you work today I think so.
1: And I think so. I think in black music, I think you have to, especially in culture music, I think more so with sort of, especially if you lean into rap or anything that's coming out of a genuine culture where life is a lot harder um, in general. Our job is to sort of allow them to sort of have the ability to be their best self. We look at mental health support. We're looking at financial education. We're looking at um, supporting the managers around them, support and making sure that the lawyers that are around them, or trying to make sure the lawyers that are around them, have their properly best interests at heart. So I think that's really important. I think I learned I learned the hard way through that because some of the stuff we got to deal with along the way of that that journey has, has really bled into everything else that I do now.
0: I'm really interested in to explore what you look for when you're signing an act. I mean, is it only talent or are you looking at the other factors that are surrounding the act as well?
1: Yeah, I think talent is key. I think I'm looking for ambition. I'm looking for a point of difference. I'm looking for, I'm normally, I'm, I'm normally feeling out for where the pain's going to come from when I'm signing and so on. So I'm trying to find out where, if all, in the best case scenario and we have the best song in the world, what will, we, what will be the problem? Is it his family? Is it is it the manager is just sort of wetting way, way over his head and, and is not going to be able to deal with a day to day of going full tilt on a campaign? And I think talent comes in there to a certain extent, but it's not the primary sort of aspect for me. For me, it's about that person's work ethic and, and ambition. Talent without the work bit is just pointless.
0: Tell us about your time after the end up successor uh, all around the world and how that tri- how that pans out and where it leads you.
1: Off the back of the N-Dubs doing so well, all around the world get a big label deal with Universal. They start running the catalogue department of Universal, which was UMTV at the time. I move in-house. I I I stop being a manager. I get married. I find my missus, get married. I meet David Joseph. He's super supportive and very sort of happy with what I've done on N-Dubs. Him and Matt and Chris bring me in as a full-time A&R person to work at the label. Um, at that point, the band goes solo. So I've got two, I've got three people who could potentially have hit records on their own now. So, and obviously I've worked with them for so long. So immediately Jonathan manages to get Talisa on X Factor as a judge as well during this period. So I've got, I'm on a small catalog label on my own doing A and R. I've got Talisa having number one hits. I've got Dappy having a number one hit on his own. Um, I'm having like regular top five with those two, those two artists. Um, I signed a kid called Charlie Brown um who I've always liked as a writer and there was an opportunity with Colin Lester who was managing him with a guy called Alex Catter um to sign him so I signed him we develop him a bit we put a record out we have a top 10 it's all going really well um and then I get a call from a guy called Max Hall, who was used to be head of international um saying there's an opportunity in Toronto to go over there and help them sort of um Help them stop the Americans stealing stealing their signings. Basically, <laughs> that's that's the long and short of it. Because it was around the period of Shawn Mendes getting signed to Island Records in the States, and Shawn Mendes lives about a mile away from the office in 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 Toronto from the Universal office. So, and obviously they've had the weekend Drake, Justin Bieber, um, Alicia Cara, and a bunch of other sort of hugely successful pop artists coming out of Canada that are not signed to the Canadian office. They go directly into New York because the money, the, the advantages are a lot higher. They're able to sort of probably wield a bigger sword on, on the cash side of it. So, um, my job was to sort of slow that flow, give people a reason to want to stay and, um, allow the Canadians to have some ownership. So I, I go there thinking, yeah, okay, let's, this shouldn't be too hard. I've been, I've been in the UK for God knows how long. Um, like a one year old and we're like, if we're going to do it. Before you start school, it's probably the right time to do it now. So I moved to Toronto with my wife um, and, and I was a director of A&R there for, for two years. Um, instead of fighting the Americans, I quickly find out that's pointless. So what I try to do is do it with them and try to do joint deals with them so that we add some skin in the game on it. So we can claim we own it, but ultimately allow them. So there's something that we sort of, you, you learn when you get there. It's just like we, made, we we find a way to make it work. So we did. And um, I signed a few bits. I, I started it in a dance label and then I, I, I signed a dance record and we developed this kid and we ended up winning a Juno the following year from the, from the artist that we developed, which was amazing for me. I was like, wow, it's like the aversion of the Brits or the Grammy. So within 18 months, I, I was on the, on the runway of like, okay, cool. I've got this sort of thing. And then what happens is the, the guy who hired me there. Um, got hired by bell media bell media the biggest um media company in, in canada they're, they're across telecom tv and everything else he moves along to bell media i get a new boss who's a lovely guy um but it wasn't he didn't hire me and he was he came in saying that he, he was going to run the a&r side but he wasn't an a&r man so at that point i'm like jesus christ so so i hit i hit up um David Joseph, again, who was always great. He kept checking in on me while I was out there. He was super, super, like, amazing and supportive while I was even abroad. He checked in on me one of the times and I I relayed the messaging of, like, I kind of like to come back, sort of thing. Then the following week, um, I get a call from Ben Mortimer, who was just about to take over from Ferdy from Polydor at the time. Um, ben Mortimer hits me up saying are you genuinely interested we go back and forth a bit and we agree that I'll, I'll come back to the UK join Polydor as part of his new team of A&R's so that's sort of coming in to join him and Tom March this is at the very very start of his presidency so I'm like, amazing, I've got a way back into England, still got a job, still a part of the universal system. My wife's going to be happy, we get to see our family again.
0: And you landed back in the UK in 2016, right? 2016, yeah, I landed back in
1: 2016, joined Polydor, um, and there was like, I knew some of the kids at Polydor already, because I'd known Jamie Spinks for years, um, and Richard Donovan, who was like an OG, like we all knew Richard Donovan was like OG status, used to work on U2 and that. Um, Between Ben and Tom, it was just like, they were on some real crud. They were like, we are going to kill everybody. We have, the mentality was like, we were a pack of people that were going to go out there and just literally dominate, like from streaming through to press, through to marketing, through to A&R. We all had to really level up and there was a camaraderie between us as an A&R team, which was, which was incredible at the time and sort of, because of that, we ended up. We ended up. We were winning deals. We were, we were charting. We were doing things that were incredible. It's great to be a part
0: of that. And you had a, a very big moment. And you talk about being aggressive in deals. And I remember there was one deal that everybody was aggressively going after that that you managed to win. And has done some amazing things since.
1: Yeah, we did. We, we, we had the Steph London situation where everybody was on. It was the hottest thing. It was just smoking hot. Everyone was on it. Um, and between me and Zion Richards, so Zion, Zion, it was me and Zion together, we sort of collectively, st- strategically sort of connected with her and built ourselves into the situation. I managed to really uh, get the confidence of the the top floor at Universal. So the Adam Barker, the David Josephs of the world, um, they lent in and was really supportive. Um, ben and Tom saw it as a big win. We managed to win the deal in the end. We paid handsomely for it. So everyone's watching us and how we get on. And we had a song called 16 Shots that was already moving, which sort of was already there when we signed it, which was popping. But we, we found another song called Hurting Me, which needed work, but we all thought it had potential. And we we were really really drilled. If you heard the first demo of that song as to what it is now, that process of a, of ANR, I I didn't think it would have happened if I if I hadn't have done the other stuff with end ups. And it charted. It started to move in America. We get the interest of the US. And we and we and we build from there. We, we were one of the few sort of black artists that could go into the states and and command attention and can penetrate culture there. We did the the triple XL um, cover. We did we did a full radio tour out there. We t- we really bedded her in properly. Um, we had the help of Coach K and obviously Ratty was the manager who sort of plugged in over there. But we had Coach K QC we had Ethiopia who was amazing on the project. Um, we had real US buy in at a cultural level within black music, which is nearly impossible to get
0: and what were some of the other acts i mean post steph that you signed during your time at polydor
1: yeah so while i was at polydor because i was doing two things i was doing steph i was covering the voice stuff the voice tv show stuff so i was involved in sort of wheeling those sort of artists out of there every 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 season um i signed a kid called blanco who i'm very very proud of i did the rex 32 album and um, the last rex 32 album that he released so i, I ain't um, and we just, yeah, those those were the sort of key things. But I was also getting a bit of itchy feet and was getting interest from other, other places. So I sort of jumped I jumped from there into publishing.
0: Which is a really interesting move. I mean, Pete, a lot of people make it. Um, not everyone's successful at it. How did you find your move away from Polydor and into your senior director role of A&R over at Sony ATV?
1: It was interesting because at Polydor, we... My frustration at Polydor at the time was that we were winning, 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 but we kept getting new people coming at a senior level from us and we were winning. I felt like the boat was being rocked regularly, even though we would do what we should have done. I couldn't understand why we, why we bought the boat when we were all really winning, but I get it. It's, it's the winner's mentality. You're never, ever satisfied. You want more. So but at the time I was frustrated with that and publishing is something I've always wanted to get into. Um, because of their focus on the writer and, and the structural side of, of behind the scenes stuff, away from the commercial business end of it, I was really wanted to sort of, I, I wanted an opportunity to lead a team. I want an opportunity to sort of develop people. Because I think as I, as, as I caress, um, progress in my career, I wanted to be able to sort of be able to say I'd led a bunch of people or I've, I've developed a team or something else. So That's my main reason for going to Sony ATV. I wanted to get involved at sort of developing people. I wanted to do the bigger signings and do stuff. I also, I like the idea of trying to turn publishing, publishing into a bit more of a rock and roll thing. My, my ethos was I wanted to turn the best writers into rock stars. So, I wanted to go there. I want to get them press releases. I want them to be in music week. I want them to have a billboard. If a if if a if if a writer had a massive year, I want to put him in the middle of fucking like Westfield on a big year. Big I want to scream about it because I think those sort of things I think would add massive value to a publishing company. So I wanted to go in full <laughs> gas mode and sort of really yeah. re- re- really really rock star up the publishing side of it. And that was that was the energy I was bringing into it. I I, I went in there with that full intention. Right, I'm gonna do some big signings. I'm going to scream about them. I'm going to make sure that if people sign to anybody, they're going to want to sign to us. I did that. We started that process. And in that period, I managed to get D-Block done. I got Parcelou done. I got TMS done. Um, I, got, I got a kid called Neve Upperbaum, who's amazing, who does the Joel Corey stuff done. We got, we got a lot of deals done. I was only there for six months in the end. But in that period, we, we definitely, definitely um, got a lot of signings in.
0: Before we talk about where you are now and what you're up to, it'd be really nice to kind of go back and talk about just the shape and the makeup of the business and and what it looked like to you and currently where we are in a lot of the cultural issues that we find ourselves in because it's something you talk very eloquently about as we've had this conversation. When you first entered the business and you were going into meetings with Jonathan Shalett, as a black man, what was your impression of the music business?
1: My impression was, as a black person, the first thing I clocked was there weren't many black people in the in, in the buildings. Because I go in, Jonathan was really good at like putting me in front of like presidents from early. Like he would, he was brazen with it. But whenever I went in these rooms, literally, you never, you just didn't see black people working there. You might see them at reception, but you just didn't see them. And and then for black culture music to be heard and to be taken seriously, it was just like you. It was at a time when there was guitar bands. It was just all indie bands, and I think. Someone said something to me yesterday, actually someone really sort of I really respect was like a lot of these people like to sign a reflection of themselves, and if they don't do that, then they don't understand it, which I think is part of what was going on then. I think a lot of these executives sort of didn't didn't really sort of understand or appreciate black culture, therefore weren't interested in supporting it, and also it had a good excuse because commercially it hadn't been proven locally sort of thing to them, so. I think that was their thinking, and I think for me, I've always looked at everything as like an opportunity, and I figured in my in my head, I'm like, right, if no one is that, then maybe that could be me. Maybe I'm the person. Maybe I'm part of the reason. I'm part of that transition. Maybe me coming here today is the first step towards that not being what it is. It's frustrating as it was. I've, I'm always I'm always like, how can I make this work for me? So that's what I did and and on I think on the end of the record, which sort of get to go back to, because we made that work commercially as an album, I think that really helped in terms of the scene and, and, and confidence within those sort of labels that doing local um culture led leg records so I, I'm not saying it's a reason, but I do think we we were a positive sort of part of that that transition which we're still sort
0: of ripping the rewards of now going through your formative years working in uh, all around the world and being inside a record company who are those people that you looked up to who are those people you went to for advice that that, that were a potential reflection of yourself
1: darkest definitely darkest like i've had time where i've had to call darkest and say i need to see you and he's made time for me <laughs> in his local area just to seem just to talk to talk me off the ledge from wanting to just go ham and cuss someone out like he's he's been brilliant joe kentish someone who i saw from very early doing really well who gets it Who's who's amazing he's Always found time for people. Um, Trenton, always been super, super helpful. Um, these are people, um, There are other people that are helpful, but for me personally, these are the people who I go, oh, I've got a problem, I need to really chat to my man. Danny D and Tim were always really helpful too, particularly Danny, who's always sort of open, like to, if, if there's any issues or anything like that. There are a few people out there that will help, that if you need if you need to call in and sort of say, boom, I've got a problem, what would you do? They, they can give me some real good sort of counsel.
0: You talk about the economic power and the success that EndUp's had. Do you think that economic power has been the catalyst for a greater acceptance and a resurgence of black ambition and black opportunity in record companies?
1: Yeah, I think it's contributed towards it. I think there's loads of other things around the world where, and that have sort of also added to it. But I think within the UK, I think that experience, that sort of the, the sort of the squashing of the commercial argument, the squashing of, yeah, well, it doesn't sell just goes right away so or, and then it's like what is it then it's like oh actually I just don't like it well that's not a good argument so we need to now focus on this sort of thing so I do think it's contributed I do think it's made a, a positive difference and I think but I also think the the sort of stuff that's gone on in America in the last year and um, the sort of the, the domination of the charts in America for black music I think globally and the sort of money that turns over I think it's sort of it allows it not to be ignored and it forces everyone to, at a corporate level to really sort of lean in. I still think we've got a long way to go.
0: And when you look back from where you were to where you are now, were there any challenges that you faced on a personal level as a black person in the business and and, and any kind of pushback? For me, on a personal level, and it still happens all the time to people, I'm sure,
1: but to sort of have an understanding of what you do culturally in the music and then be told by an indie guy or uh, a guy who only does dance, That to, to tweak your records or to change your records or to like, to sort of have, have someone else gatekeep your culture that you've been, you've been raised in and, uh, knee deep in and have been proven over, over and over. That can, that can get frustrating. That, that, that happens day to day. Like up until now, I mean, now there are some black presidents at music labels where they get the final say, but you've got to understand that if you're at a record label, the ultimate say is with the president. No matter how you, he's the one who signs off the money. So. You can't commission, you can't, a release can't go out without the president giving you that green light sort of thing. And the, some, the frustration I used to get at other places was like, you're telling me to change this, but you don't understand what we're trying to do with it. So I feel like you're just getting involved for the sake of it.
0: And you talk a lot about the culture, what it means, and how it informs the music. Is that always something you come back to when you're when you're making records with your acts? I think it's important. I think you've got to lean into the audience. You've got to sort of look at what's going on with culture.
1: Like the data side of the world at the moment is so informative with TikTok, Triller. It's easier now than it ever has been to sort of observe the culture. So I don't think we've got any excuse. I think we've got to we have to have to lean in. So I do think we play an important role in that. And I think they have A&Rs that suit different type of styles and whatnot. Um, and I think the culture is a massive aspect of that. And I think staying true to the culture, to me, is what penetrates a lot easier and a lot quicker and actually sets fire to records.
0: So let's talk about where you are now. Director of A&R Atlantic Records, a new move in, in one of the great companies. Tell us about what you're up to.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm at Atlantic now as director, A&R director. Um, I work closely with Austin Dabo, who's an amazing person, um, Brian Turner, who's amazing, and Ed Howard. Ed and Briany between them, <laughs> I've sold more records than pretty much anyone I, I, I know. Um, Ed Howard's obviously responsible for Ed Sheeran, and Brian is obviously responsible for Jess Glynn, Clean Bandit, and a bunch of other um, amazing records. And for me, going to Atlantic was was about a quality of record, Atlantic have been known over the years for delivering on artist propositions and not just in the singles market, but they've actually seen things through all the way to Grammy level on a regular basis. And for me, one thing I've never got so far is is that Grammy thing. And I work towards it every day. And my my dream is to sort of win Grammys with artists that we found in the UK and that that are world beaters. And I think having been a part of a team of people that are, are so invested in the artists' story and proposition, um, it was something that I couldn't turn down. Having Austin in the mix who, He's been head at Spotify. He's been at Apple. There's nobody more informed than him around strategy, around data, around approaches and, and branding and stuff like that. And he, he adds massive value to what we do as a company. And also being a fellow black person as well at a senior level who, um, is able to sort of move a dial on things internationally. For me, I've never had that in my, in my working life that I've worked with. Um, and is, is a massive, massive positive and, and speaks to sort of the vision in which we want to have around Atlantic at the moment.
0: You've been a manager, you've worked in labels, you've worked in publishing. Where's the love? Which is the one that you kind of gravitate to? If you had to choose one of those three, it's like, that's where I want to be. You know what? You
1: say, good to say, I love all my children. <laughs> <laughs> one more than the other. But the record, in the record business side of it, the pace of it, the cutthroatness of it, I, I, I love the, the, the pressure. I love the sort of pace. I love the, the, the win. I love the kill. Um, so I think the record side of it is something that I'm just not going to be able to shake off ever. I love the deals, I love the process, I love the sort of um, even when it's going wrong, I always I manage to find some sort of enjoyment in the process of of, of rectifying situations. Like I, I feel like I'm just I'm cut cut out to do
0: this sort of business as someone who has lived a, a really full life to date and had opportunity and grasped opportunity, how important is it for you to kind of hold your hand out and lead the next generation through?
1: It's everything for me. I can't do what I do without there being the the, the better ones behind me coming through. And I think I've got an obligation to leave the door wide open, If I've got an obligation to actually drag people through the door. As long as I'm in the business, I will always try and help and mentor and develop and bring people through. Uh, but I do think we have to identify the people that have... have That hunger and thirst and and, and work ethic, too. I think a lot of people are sort of, will just say, will ask for it and and wonder why they haven't got it. And then then the other people who would just go and take it, and that will really put themselves in situations where we have to take note. And I'm interested in helping those people and and sort of putting those people um, through the system.
0: The mentoring thing is really apt that you bring that because obviously part of DigiNo's philosophy and ethos is about mentoring and about having great people like yourself spending time with a young person. And, and just guiding them through. So what are you looking for in a mentee, in that young person? I'm looking for ambition.
1: I'm looking for a problem solver, someone who can, a can-do type of person, um, someone who um, has a passion and a love for an area of something. I don't get what it is. As long, as long as there's that genuine sort of passion and, and a strong work ethic and ability to adjust to situations, I, I want somebody who's really hungry and uh, super, super ambitious.
0: As we come to close this, Rich, do you have any regrets? Is there any things you look back on and go, you know what, if only? I wouldn't
1: say regrets. I do sometimes wonder if I'd have played things a bit different. I'm at the age now where I'm approaching 40, where a lot of my peers are are turning into presidents. And sometimes you're like, oh God, I need to keep the pace up. I need more hits so I can get to that place sooner. But ultimately, I also think your journey is your journey, your race is your race, and you can't really look left and right. You've got to keep moving forward. So... I do, so sometimes I do question whether I should have done more at this point because I'm quite hard on myself. Um, but ultimately, I really feel like if I do my job properly and right, things come.
0: And has the journey been everything you thought it was going to be
1: to this point? Way more, way more. I, I didn't expect what I've had. I've, I'm very grateful. Like I didn't expect anything. I, I'm not from an um, affluent family. So like, I've, I, I managed to holiday. I managed to buy a house. I managed to do things that I, I couldn't have dreamed of as a teenager, genuinely. Um, so yeah it's definitely definitely um, I'm definitely grateful for where I am and but I definitely know there's a lot more in it well I've also got two young boys two sons as well so my 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 sort of sort of pursuit of leaving a proper legacy driven by that and I always feel like
0: I'm, I've done a decent amount but not nearly enough so there's still more to be done for the young Castillos coming behind you
1: Yeah, yeah. I couldn't stop now and go, yeah, look what daddy did. I'm definitely not there at all. Not even nearly.
0: Well Rich, we're all interested to see what you're gonna write on the pages that follow, but for now, thank you for joining us on Did You Know the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend.
1: Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. Thank you, mate.
0: I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know, a downstreet production. Our thanks to Rich Castillo for sharing his stories. Thanks as ever to my partner in crime and true pioneer Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their continued support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Podcast we'll be providing details for where you submit your applications later in the series Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five star review and please look out for our next episode with Sony Records Director of Africa Tapi Mivunga where she tells the story of her remarkable journey and career this was Did You Know